give praise and thanks to you that you meet all of the needs of your people, that you meet our needs, that you shepherd us as the psalm declares. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Your goodness, your covenant love toward us has been appointed from all eternity, and it follows us all the days of our lives, even when we don't sense it, but we know it's there. We will dwell in your presence as we've been singing this morning forever one day, and all knees will bow before you, Lord Jesus, and proclaim that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. And we look forward to that day and our reward to be received. And we pray this morning that you would guide us as we study your word that would give us even more hope and encouragement and focus on the kingdom to come. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, well, it's good to be back. We had a wonderful vacation visiting our children and uh, glad to be back worshiping with you this morning. You know, uh, so the book of the month recommendation, if you get news and notes, which if you don't, you should sign up for that so that you'll know what's going on in the church. But the book of the month that I'm recommending this month is The Master Plan of Evangelism. So I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this book. It's a very small book, but it's a very significant book. It's had a major impact over the last, what, 60 plus years on American evangelicalism and around the world. Um, So basically, the thesis of this book is, what if we studied how Jesus made disciples and decided to do it the same way. Novel idea, huh? I mean, what if we actually studied the gospel accounts, looked for Jesus' method, and then actually followed it? Well, that's what this book is about. And there are eight principles of discipleship in here. I probably read this book ten times. Um, I do it with every men's group that I ever lead. We read this book. So I'd really encourage you to pick it up. The link's in News and Notes, and you can buy the book. And uh, I know you want to be better disciple makers. That's really the Great Commission. Jesus made it really clear. Our job as the church is to go make disciples. It's very simple. So this book will help you be a better, better disciple maker. Well, let's look at our passage. We're back in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 12. And the title for our sermon this morning is Charity Relieves Your Anxiety. Now, at first, as you read this passage, you might not quite get that connection, but I hope it'll become plain to you as we get to the end of our section today. So, you know, most of us here don't worry much about the basic necessities of life, if we call them food and clothes and shelter, simply because it isn't really necessary for us to worry about these things. We have them, and it's not too likely that any of us in this room are going to lose them. Um, And so it's not a very pressing need. And so then the question we should probably ask ourselves then, so then why aren't we free from anxiety? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? Why aren't we free? And we have less reason to be anxious than so many people in the world, but the problem is we have more. And so we have more to be anxious about, more to worry about. And sometimes we, we do worry over things that really aren't necessities in our life. But it's also true that we have real needs that are more than what we might call basic necessities. And this is very important to grasp this concept. Otherwise, the passage today might just sort of slip by as an irrelevancy to you. And that is, we all live within a God-appointed context in our lives. And we live at a particular time 
in a particular place that God has assigned to us. We live to a, in a particular society with a particular standard of living that's expected, and God has given us particular callings to fulfill. And those things, this context that God puts us in, that's largely what determines the needs in our life. These contextual needs of our time and our place, and, and they actually run quite high. And so there is great concern attached to them, and the stakes are so much higher for us, it seems, than in other times. And when we carry this burden alone, that we somehow have to meet all those needs, that can be very crushing in our lives. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. I've printed it for you as well in your bulletin. And let's learn about Jesus' lesson for dealing with anxiety. We're going to uh, go through the passage as we go through it. We'll read it as we go through it. But Luke is really continuing to record Jesus' words after the parable that he told about the rich fool. Immediately precedes this passage. And that's because Luke wants us to consider more carefully the priorities in our life and where peace really comes from. So we're going to learn today that if we trust God to meet our needs and give us the kingdom, well, then we can live freely, charitably, and purposefully. Wouldn't that be great to be able to live freely, charitably, and purposefully? And so our Lord Jesus teaches us here in our passage to keep our priorities straight, and we might summarize them this way. In verses 22 to 32, stop worrying about the worldly life. And then in verses 20, 33 to 34, start giving for the heavenly life. Stop worrying about the worldly life and start giving for the heavenly life. Our passage this morning does seem to have a parallel in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount from chapter 6, but they're likely very different occasions, and Jesus would often teach the same thing or very similar things on many different occasions. But one thing I want you to notice in verse 22 in our passage today is when Jesus starts speaking, he begins with the word, for this reason, or therefore. In other words, it's connected specifically, directly, to what he just got done talking about in verses 13 to 21. So let me read that to you again. He says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul shall be required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so our passage follows directly on this. Therefore, so in other words, if you want to know how to be rich toward God, now Jesus is going to teach you exactly what that means. And our section that we're looking at today is full of illustrations, full of reasons, and full of principles on how the disciples could actually do this. So let's take a look at them. First of all, we really should stop worrying about the worldly life in verses 22 to 32. Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, uh, people like us who really want to be better followers of him. And so he first points out that we should consider what takes place in nature, verses 22 to 28. And then he encourages us to consider the worldly people. Consider nature 
and consider worldly people. So first we consider nature, and he says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, or about your body, what you shall put on. For the life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of, to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So we're told very directly by Jesus right away not to worry or to stop worrying about our lives. Apparently, we can do that sort of thing. Um, We don't have to be victims of worry. And later on in the New Testament, one of the famous passages we all know is Philippians 4, 6, and it gives us very specific tips, if you will, instructions on how to not worry. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, in other words, you can't explain it, how it works, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever tried those three things? Prayer, supplication, that is asking God for things, and giving thanks. And it relieves your anxiety, and God's peace in Christ floods your soul. Well, in verse 22, Jesus references our life, meaning body and soul, in order to bring to mind the totality of our personhood. And he picks out the two most basic necessities to cover all basic necessities, food and clothing. And in one sense, if you have those two things, you have enough and you have nothing really to worry about. But even though you have food and clothing, which you obviously do, and the people that Jesus, this is really important, the people Jesus is talking to, you know, they have clothes on. Okay? And they have food. Okay? They have these things. Okay? It's part of life. So they have them, but there are other needs, and we likely worry about those. And by looking at nature and taking us through that to look at that, he instructs us very effectively. And so there are actually two reasons in here that are given with two examples. In verses 23 and 24, we have the first reason is that life's more important. And then we're given the example of ravens. And then the second example in verses 25 and following, the second reason not to worry is that it's unproductive. The first reason not to worry is life's more important than that. Second reason is it's not going to do you any good anyway. And then he gives the example of the lilies. So in the first one, the first main reason not to be anxious about our needs is that life is more important than food and clothes than any other needs that you might have. Life itself is more important. There's more to life than these things, and we all know that, and we have to learn to trust God as the sustainer of our lives and to live them out as he intends us to in fullness and in joy and belonging to him. But then the first illustration is that of a raven and how God feeds ravens. We wonder why he does that, because they're ugly birds, but he does feed ravens, right? They are, according to the scriptures, they're low-life, unclean birds, So he picks out, Jesus picks out ravens specifically for a reason. Because God even feeds them. And if you have ever looked at a raven, uh, they don't work. They steal. Um, They steal from my garbage can and yours. 
They don't plan. They don't save. They scavenge for food. And we have good reason to generally hate them. You know? So feel free to do what you want to the ravens. But if any bird, you see, is unworthy of God's grace and mercy, it would be this kind of bird. And that's why it's picked out. They're an example, though, of letting God take care of us. And how much more valuable are we than birds, than you, than birds, than this particular kind? That should be even easy to see for those of us in the room who have lower than average self-esteem. I mean, at least you're better than a raven. Right? And God takes care of ravens. He's going to take care of you. So then the second reason to be not anxious is it's unproductive in verses 25 to 26. You can't add a cubit to your stature, as some translations have it. And it's really just a way of saying you can't add a day to your life. You can't add a day to your life. Now what's really interesting is that Jesus says this is a small thing to do. Did you catch that? Like, it's an easy thing to add a day to your life. Well, it is for God. He can add as many days to your life as he wants to add to your life. But for us, of course, it's impossible. We can't add a day to our life. And worry is not going to add a day to your life. If anything, as our doctors would tell us, it's going to take a day off your life. Maybe more if you worry about things. And if we can't affect the length of our life, then why does it do any good to worry about anything else? It's not ultimately that important. Worry, we worry over so many things. It's wasted labor because we can't change things that are outside of our control. And the implication of Jesus teaching is that there are a lot of things that are outside of our control. But we tend to think that we can control so many variables, so many factors in our life. But the reality is that there's so much outside of our control. And the things over which we even do have control, there are all these associated variables with it that we can't control. So it's like we really can't control anything, it seems, at times. So worry is simply unproductive, and it's an irresponsible response. But it feels responsible, doesn't it? You know, like that's what we should be doing. We should be worrying. Somehow we're accomplishing something. Uh, somehow we're being responsible. We're attuned to what's going on. But worry and anxiety is really an irresponsible behavior. And so the second and third illustration are the lilies and the grass and their clothes. And so... He's pointing out the wild spring lilies that are multicolored and they exceed the beauty of even Solomon's rich textured clothing. Even one flower, did you catch that? In Jesus' words, just one flower has more glory than all of Solomon. Just one. And God did it. And the lilies didn't have to do anything to get the glory. And if you go out and meditate and study flowers, you can see there is a lot of beauty there that God has designed. And God chooses to spend his time even putting flowers on field grasses that he references here that you use to burn in your oven to cook food. So even field grasses that don't seem to have any purpose but to be fuel for fire, God determines, and for his own glory and his own purposes, he's going to adorn them with flowers. Amazing. That's his prerogative. That's his delight. And it ought to be clear that God is the one who controls life and death and everything in heaven. And so Jesus concludes this little section with the words, O men of little faith. I mean, faith is the real issue, isn't it? Underlying our anxiety and worry in our lives. I mean, it's obviously a word of shame when Jesus gets to this point. He's pointing out all these things and he says, Oh, you 
men of little faith. But it's also a word of encouragement, too. I mean, there's a lot promised by Jesus in this passage already. He promises to take care of all of our needs. And he does so, as we've seen, all according to his plan, his wisdom, his goodness. We don't always see it. We don't always comprehend how he's doing it and why in the midst of our struggles. But nevertheless, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, we know we must have faith. We do have faith and we trust him. In other words, in a larger theological context, God cares for the, if he cares for these things that were just mentioned, dirty birds like ravens, and he cares for the flowers of the field and grasses, then most certainly he's going to care for his special creation, human beings, and especially those among whom he has blessed with salvation and is going to grant them the kingdom the ones that he chose in eternity for himself, the ones for whom Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for their sins, the ones for whom God would give his Holy Spirit to indwell them and empower them, these people, you and me, most certainly he's going to care for us. And we have the privilege, if you will, of being even more involved in our own sustenance than the birds and the flowers. In the illustrations, they don't do anything. But we have the opportunity to be involved in the means by which God provides for us. Now, some might say, well, that's our problem. Right? However, greater involvement in the means of God's provision should be a source of faith, not self-trust. But that's the perennial struggle we all have, isn't it? I mean, that's clearly exactly what it is. It's because God chooses so often to provide for us through the means of our own efforts and involvement. It's so that we actually have more faith and trust in Him and can see what He's doing, but so often we turn it back on ourselves and we think we're the ones that provide or we're worried that we're the ones that can't provide. Well, then after looking at nature, Jesus says, well, consider worldly people in verses 29 to 32. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, verse 29 actually restates the message of verse 22. Right? You think Jesus is just repeating himself, but he's actually ratcheting up the conversation here, if you will, because there's a, there's a word here that's used in the Greek text the original text here that's unique in this portion of the New Testament. In other words, it doesn't occur anywhere else, but this is what the word means. Stop being insecure. Stop being so moody. Stop getting worked up. Stop being in suspense over. That's the word for worry there. So he's he's intensified the conversation, and, and that's really what happens to us, isn't it? It's a very good description of how we can get and pursuing too hard after our own needs and desires. And notice that we're not talking about the realm of nature anymore. We're talking about the realm of humanity. And the example that's given are all these worldly people around the world who don't know God. And so what happens here now in our conversation with Jesus is that we turn our needs into things to pursue and possess. And it the urges become uncontrollable. 
And in verse 30, the contrast is now going to be drawn within the realm of mankind because there are two types of people. There are worldly people and then there are disciples of Jesus. Those are the two people in our passage. See, the worldly people from all the nations, they forage around for what they can get, but they've already rejected God as their father. And how foolish and how sad and how insulting and revolting actually to God the Father of all creation. And then they hoard up for themselves all these possessions that they found and they hold on to them as if that's their eternal treasure. That's the world. Look at them. But then we have a Father God and we know that He knows what we need and that we need many things. We need many things. And we know that he also cares for us and he wants to provide for us just like our earthly fathers do. And many of us here this morning are fathers. And we provide for our children. And how inappropriate it would be for our children to then, after we provide for them, to sort of leave and wander off looking for things for themselves as if we didn't give them anything. And we all have stories of God's great provision in our life, I would hope, I would encourage you to keep telling those stories to yourself and to one another at the right time for encouragement because we all need it constantly. And then verse 31 tells us that rather than worrying about life's needs, we ought to seek for the kingdom. We're freed up to do this because we trust the Father to meet all of our needs. And if we make God and His rule our priority, then He's going to meet all of our needs in our life. I mean, verse 32 is actually most encouraging of all because it tells us that in verse 31, Jesus says, seek the kingdom. But in verse 32, he says, he's going to give you the kingdom. He's going to give you the kingdom. And now you think about that for a minute. There's a lot of irony here, the contrast. The kingdom is attainable. But meeting our life's needs is not for ourselves. Isn't that odd in the passage? Like we run after things and we worry for things and we try to meet our needs or add a day to our life or do all these other things, but somehow we can't do those things. But yeah, Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom, and by the way, I'm going to give it to you. And the kingdom is full of so much more than this life. So there's no need to fear in life and death because God our Father has freely chosen to give to his little flock, those he cares for, his church, his people, you and me, the kingdom, now and in the future. And we should notice that as a disciple of Jesus, we're an object of his pleasure and his desires. So we can stop worrying about this life, the worldly life. You know, God doesn't make life easy. And that's so that we trust Him and not ourselves. That's why your life's hard. That's why my life's hard. That's why all our lives are hard. It's so that we don't trust in ourselves, but that we learn to trust in God. And then, when we trust in Him, it's really surprising, isn't it? Because then all of a sudden, man, life's easy seems like it some days when that peace of God that passes all understanding comes over your soul and you realize, wow, life is easy with God. So when you need to do it, I would encourage you to take a, a theological nature walk. You mean, you don't have to go very far. You got, you got a trash can, you're going to have some ravens, so you can go look at them. And then... Uh, you know, this is the garden state, right? And so you don't have to go very far to see beauty and flowers, and especially in the spring. And then you can go walk down your street 
and look at all your worldly neighbors and how much stuff they have and realize, you know, God's going to take care of you too if he takes care of them. You know, as a disciple of Jesus, if we trust God to meet our needs and give you the kingdom, then we can live freely, we can live charitably, we can live purposefully, and we can give our full attention to doing what Jesus wants us to do in this passage, which is to seek the kingdom and to seek his purposes in this world. And now next is the example of actually how to do this. You know, he's not done talking here. He's still in the middle of a conversation with us. And here's a very good example that relates to anxiety and worry. So there's more that we can do to actually relieve our anxiety. So first of all, we said we should stop worrying about the worldly life. But the second thing we should do is really start giving for the heavenly life in verses 33 and 34. And so we have an example here of kingdom seeking. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And of course, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But we have this example in verse 33 of kingdom seeking. Jesus boldly tells us to sell our possessions and give to charity, give to people in need. Now notice that the word all is purposefully missing. That should help. You don't have to, you don't have to sell everything. Okay? Just a few things. So that's really doable to be a charitable person. And he's not talking about tithing, which is assumed in the context here these people would be doing that. But charitable giving is something that we do above and beyond to situations that God brings into our life. And so charitable giving is an example, you see, of seeking the kingdom. That's one way you seek the kingdom. And kingdom priorities. It's also a great antidote to worry. And it frees us from materialism, whether we're rich or poor. You know, you don't need to have a lot to be a charitable person. And you don't need to have a lot to be a materialistic person. So this is a great solution to the problem because it removes the very source of our worry, stuff, right? So we give it away, then it doesn't bother us anymore because it's not around. So we can easily understand how this works. It forces us to change our behavior patterns from pursuing things to helping other people. In other words, and it's also one of God's great means because he has so many means at his disposal, ways in which he does things, that is. This is one of the ways in which he actually meets other people's needs. And then they give praise to God for God meeting their needs, even though it came through you. It's amazing how he does all that. And then they praise him. And it gets the focus off of ourself and our concerns and puts it on other people. Have you ever done this, given to people who are in need? It's a humbling joy. Have you ever received gifts from people? Meeting your needs through others. Well, that's a humbling blessing too. Let other people do that. It's wonderful. And then he says, provide for yourself money bags that don't grow old or some other translations, make purses that don't wear out. It's a way of saying you should go make deposits in the bank of heaven. Money and possessions here in this world are subject to loss, uh, to decay, uh, to thieves, uh, to moths, to our own consumption, to terrorist strikes, to gasoline prices, to economic instabilities, and the list goes on and on and on. But you see, 
Charity is the best investment because you're going to get it all back. You see, it allows us to keep it all because we are giving for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And then we get to verse 34, the treasure principle in verse 34, the point of this whole message this morning, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The last time we spoke, we talked about the treasure principle, and I mentioned there's actually a book by that title by Randy Alcorn. It's a wonderful little like, gift book. It's easy to read, but it's a very powerful little book, The Treasure Principle. And there are a lot of ways you can state or restate what Jesus is saying here. It's like whatever we value as treasure, that's where we're going to find our heart engaged. Our heart's going to follow our money wherever we put it. Another way to say it. Or another way to say it would be that we're fiercely loyal to that which we value most. I mean, how much do you value the kingdom of God? How much do you value your money and your possessions? It's pretty easy for you to figure that out on your own. You can just go look at your balance sheet or you can look at your checkbook or whatever you do to keep track of your finances and your worth and all those types of things. But it's a good window into your heart because you're going to see where your heart goes. You know, when we looked at verses 13 to 21 about the guy that was overly concerned with getting his share in the inheritance, and Jesus said, I don't really care because your heart's not in the right place. And then he tells it to parable of the rich fool. You know, Bob, and then he ends that in verse 21. What does he say? He says, be rich toward God. And then that's this teaching. How do you be rich toward God? Stop worrying and start giving away. That's how you be rich toward God. Don't be greedy, but be giving. And at this point in our current passage, you know, Jesus' assumption for his disciples is that you know, they know and accept everything he's saying. It's just not complicated. But they needed his encouragement, and, and so do we. And uh, you know, the purpose of this passage and this morning and the sermon is not to make us all feel guilty that we should like, give away everything. The whole point is that we should be encouraged that God meets our needs and be encouraged that we can excel still more in our charitability, in our giving toward people and our seeking after the kingdom. And we can start giving for the heavenly life. We should live a life of generous charity because we're so secure in the Father's kingdom. If we trust God to meet our needs and to give us the kingdom, well, then we can be free of worry. And we can live freely. And we can be charitable because we're not worried anymore. And we can be more purposeful in how we live our lives, because we're not consumed with seeking after something that's so limited in scope. You see, charity is going to eliminate your anxiety. I guarantee it. Try it, because Jesus said it works, so I believe it, right? And then tell somebody how it worked. I was thinking this morning of when my very first lesson on this came, and it actually is in New Jersey, of all places. Yeah. Yeah, good things do come out of New Jersey. And so I was on a summer project with crew in Ocean City. And uh, I was just a poor college student, my wife and I, at the time we were engaged. And uh, somebody had a pretty serious need, one of our fellow students. And I gave away my first $100. You know, like today it's like, oh yeah, big deal. You know, but I mean, back then, in 1987, I guess I would have been. And for being a poor college student, that's a lot of money, you know. But God laid it on our hearts, on my heart, and uh, I felt so good after giving that away, and it relieved all my anxiety of whether or not I would earn enough money that summer to be able to pay my college bills. 
just because I decided to be charitable. So it does work. And, uh, and ever since then, that has uh, been a lesson that I've gone back to in my life. So I encourage you to be charitable and let God minister to you. Well, it's also really important to realize when you look at a passage like this that Jesus is not opposed to hard work. Oh, it's really easy to misapply the Bible. People do that all the time because people are always looking for excuses. And it's not just other people. It's sometimes it's us, you know. But Jesus is not against hard work. He's not against being intense. He's not against sacrifice. He's not against responsible planning. I mean, that stuff's all over Scripture, these types of things, especially if you read the book of Proverbs. I mean, Jesus lived quite an intense sacrificial life and worked very hard himself, and so did his disciples. So he's not against those things. This passage isn't teaching that. And if you think this passage relieves you of having to do hard work or sacrifice or be a responsible person, then you're reading the passage wrongly because you're not a raven or a flower. I mean, if you're a raven, you have an excuse or a flower, but you're not. You're a human being created in the image of God. And God has determined that he's going to use your hard work, your intensity, your sacrifice, and all those things as ways in which he's going to supply your need. The real question before us is whether or not we do that from a sense of peace internally, or we do it out of worry and anxiety. You know, there are endless applications uh, to trust God in our many situations that can bring forth anxiety in our lives. You know, think about some of the different stages in our life. For example, I mean, going back to the college days, I mean, we worry about school. We worry about our studies. We worry about friends. We worry about teams. We worry about paying for things. We also, then we worry about our jobs. We worry about getting a job. We worry about advancement in our jobs. We worry about keeping our jobs. We worry about making enough money. We worry about retiring. And then we worry about our country and our world. We worry about safety. We worry about justice. We worry about the economy. We worry about our laws. We worry about our leadership. We worry about ecology. We worry about peace. We worry about taxes. I mean, just go on and on. And then we worry about our regular duties. We worry about our house. We worry about our work. We worry about our church. We worry about our Christian life. And we worry about mission. Those two things are sort of weird, but we worry about those things. We worry about the Christian life. We worry about mission. We worry about our relationships with our children. We worry about our parents. We worry about our in-laws, especially them, right? We worry about friendships. We worry about our neighbors. And we worry about things we enjoy, which is also strange. We worry about having fun. We worry about recreation. We worry about our vacations. We worry about our hobbies. And then we have plenty of problems on top of all these good things. So we worry about our health, and we worry about other people's health, and we worry about our vehicles, and we worry about our houses. You know, and the list goes on and on and on, right? We'd be here all day. I mean, we worry about almost everything every single day. You could if you wanted to. And the sad thing is, is that there are some people, they're not happy until they're worrying about something. That shouldn't be our situation, though. God's going to provide for what's needed in our lives, in our context, in our calling. 
He's going to provide the funds. He's going to provide the time that we need. Sometimes we're worried about that. The perspectives, the wisdom, the insight. Sometimes we're worried we're not going to have that or the courage we're going to need. He's going to provide those things. You are much more valuable to God than any of his creatures because you are made in the image of God. Even though we're fallen, we're not a bird or a flower or a piece of grass. And on top of that, you're even more valuable to God because you're part of his church. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And you are being remade by the Holy Spirit into the very image of Jesus Christ. Oh, God is very concerned about your life and providing everything you need for it so that you can give him praise and glory. So we trust him to meet our needs. We trust him to give us the kingdom. And as we do that more and more and more, you know, it's not a, like, do that today and everything's going to be okay. This is something we have to do every day, multiple times a day, to trust Him to meet our needs, give us the kingdom, and then we can be free, and we can be giving, and we can live purposefully. I mean, Jesus really here gives us an anxiety reduction program, and there's three points to it. And the first is, consider God's care for the birds, the flowers, the grass, and your worldly neighbors. That's point one. Just go out and take a look at what he's doing and providing for things. Second, consider that God is actually, in contrast to all of that, he's your father. And he's given you his kingdom in Jesus Christ. That's the second point. The third point in this program for reducing anxiety is to seek the kingdom. And he gives us one example. There are many more examples Jesus could have given, and he will as we continue in this teaching section in the Gospel of Luke. But the one he gives here that we can focus on today is seek the kingdom by being a charitable person and see if what Jesus says is true. Well, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace in our lives to bring us to yourself, to save us. But we also praise you for your teaching, your modeling. So powerful, at times so convicting, but always so greatly encouraging. And we pray that you give us the faith to trust your words, the word of God today, and to live it out in our lives and see you reward faith. And we pray that as a result that you would increase our faith and that you'd cause us to be even better disciples of yours. Amen. Well, today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, so if those men who are helping, if you would please come forward.